uh, more packed than Thanksgiving and Christmas time. I have a lot of things <clears throat> going on in May. I have an anniversary. I have a granddaughter's birthday. I have a daughter's birthday. I have my wife's birthday. I have Mother's Day and with everything else. So I, I just want to say in two weeks uh, that could uh, be happening. So I'd like you guys to prepare for that. And other than that, I just want to say a word about those who are working on the church. That stuff is great out there. I don't know exactly all who's involved, but it's uh, fantastic. I think Pat's heading that up. If you're interested in volunteering for that, you just ask him to uh, let you lend a hand. Now, with that, we are in the book of Galatians. And by the way, right after service, I've got to jet out of here. I have to go to Dana Point. There is an extended family member memorial service, and that's why I'm dressed in all black here uh, today, that I'm just going to be taken off. So if you look for me after church, and I am not here, I haven't been raptured, I'm just going a little bit north. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. <clears throat> let's go ahead and ask for the Lord's blessing on this word. <clears throat> Father, we offer up to you praises from our hearts and from the lips that we possess. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us to sing to you, to worship with a pure heart, undivided. We ask that you would help us to walk that life of offering ourselves as a daily sacrifice, as it says in Romans 12. We pray also that we'd be able to forsake the ways of the world and the promptings of the flesh, that we might be those who are called by your name, walking in the goodness of the light that you have provided. And we pray that you would shed some light today for us on those who would seek to move us away from the center of the true gospel. We ask that you would give us discernment as well, and bring to remembrance your word that we are going to read about today in order to accomplish that. And you are so good to us. You pro provide for us insight and wisdom on what lies ahead, <clears throat> excuse me, what lies ahead, as well as what pitfalls to avoid. And I pray that we had learned those today, at least some of them, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in 1972... There was an individual who offered instruction in the local school district through a night school program. The instructor was obsessed with deviant behaviors and discussed the subjects of extrasensory perception and syphilis in civics classes in the night school. When he arrived to teach at that school, he was always preceded by two bodyguards, and there were times when he would yell at the students and even chase them out the door of the classroom. When written complaints were made to the school district, they were eventually buried and ignored. The instructor was also critical of the United States government, and he never spoke against the nations of the Soviet Union, Maoist China, or Castro's Cuba. The same individual was a charismatic pastor, quote, prophet of a nearby church in Redwood Valley. This charismatic pastor prophet of the nearby church, it was called the People's Temple Church that was in, again, Redwood Valley. As pastor, he had ordered couples in his church to divorce if either the husband or the wife refused to attend. 
And sometimes their children would be placed with other members of the congregation. Even though this reverend was part of a respected 1.9 million member Disciples of Christ Christian Church, abuse, financial problems, and even torture ended up being a part of the pastor's career. It was on November 19, 1978, that this pastor, the Reverend Jim Jones, who led his followers in a mass murder-suicide at the commune in Guyana. Now, what about this? The Lord has told us that there are going to be teachers, false prophets, that will come along and will attempt to deceive with false doctrine as well as doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachers come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. In that same book, in chapter 6, verse 3, we are warned if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree with sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it reads, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping." Now, we have been warned about such individuals as these, and have you ever wondered how these false teachers get a foothold inside the church? Because that's normally where they start. They start inside the church, then they eventually branch off or break off, and they start their own particular ministry. Now, with that, we do have a clue from Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, it says, Where there is no vision... The people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. I remember this from the King James Version. Where there, where there is no prophetic vision, or there is no word of God, or the word of God is not adhered to, or the word of God is not understood, the people can actually perish under that type of leadership, under that type of ministry. If we don't know God's word, these people will experience undue and unnecessary trouble and strife. Now, I want to give you an example. Imagine if a church promoted the exercise of circumcision, that it was the biblically right and proper thing to do, and it would definitely garner the support of God himself. 
what if there were circumcision inspectors and the church even offered the service of circumcision? Could you imagine that if we did that here? If we said, and over in the fellowship hall after church, if you'd like to be circumcised, you just go ahead and go over there and you'll take a number and we'll get that accomplished. Could you imagine if we did something like that? I would think that that was weird. I would think that that was a little off. I would want to question that like, what does the scripture say? What's doctrine concerning this area? Now, as I said, there would definitely be problems in that church for sure and problems in addition to just providing circumcision. This was the exact case in the church of Galatia and Paul, as I've stated before, uses the strongest and most condemnatory language to speak about such behavior. If this practice were allowed to continue in the church of Galatia, they would have become a cult and the individuals would no longer get saved and they would quite possibly fall into great harm as other destructive heresies would have been introduced. Because error begets error. And in the church of Galatia, not only was the circumcision an issue and how they were to live, but also following the entirety of the Old Testament law. And we're going to read about how Paul handled this specific problem. But first, let's do a little review since we haven't been in the book of Galatians for about three weeks. So in chapter 1, Paul introduces himself and expresses that he was not sent by any man. He gives a greeting, grace and peace to you, and immediately expresses his concern that the Galatians have abandoned the truth of the gospel, which he received directly from Jesus Christ. He didn't get it from the apostles. Jesus appeared to him and gave him the gospel. He even makes it clear that it wasn't until three years later that he actually met the apostle Peter and the Lord's brother, James, who were also apostles. So he, he got everything that he received from Jesus Christ directly. He didn't get it through the evangelistic efforts of the apostles. In chapter 2, after 14 more years, so he spent all of this time ministering up in the north in the area of Antioch up there, After 14 years, he went back to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus to meet with the apostles James, Peter, and John. They all agreed that Paul should go to the Gentiles and the other apostles would continue to evangelize the Jews. Paul informs us that he was in Antioch when he was there. Peter came for a visit and Paul had to rebuke him because he had listened to the Judaizers who persuaded him to disassociate himself from the Gentiles. He believed that it was better for the Gentiles to live under Jewish customs, even though he was not doing that himself. And Paul also states that nobody is justified or declared right in the eyes of God by living under the law of the Old Testament. So one apostle is rebuking another apostle. In chapter 3, he then calls for the Galatians believers, or he calls the Galatian believers fools. Now, he started this church. And then he writes this letter back to them. And he goes, you guys are a bunch of fools. What are you doing? Again, this is really strong language. And you would think, well, a pastor is just supposed to love and encourage and, you know, protect the sheep. And he goes and he calls them, you bunch of fools, because they're trying to perfect the flesh. Now, when I say the flesh, I mean this body, trying to perfect this body. And those people who do not walk in the spirit, they often do that. They set up parameters and boundaries uh, 
wearing dresses for the women, wearing suits or coat and tie for the men. The men should be clean shaven. They shouldn't have any hair on their face, that type of thing. And maybe they call uh, Saturday the Sabbath or they call Sunday the Sabbath and they watch their diet, not for health reasons or just because it's good practice because uh, sometimes people misinterpret the scripture and they say, this is what you should eat. The original Adam and Eve, they were vegetarians and we should be vegetarians. And there's certain things that you're supposed to say, certain keys you're supposed to sing in, certain activities you're supposed to avoid, dancing and smoking and all of those things. And they, they put up all these hedges and then they're condemnatory to the, towards those who choose not to participate with them. They are considered by those who practice these rules and regulations, the others are considered less spiritual. When in fact, those who put up all the hedges, they are the ones who are still infants in Christ. And that seems contrary to human nature, but that is the perfecting of the flesh. And this is what monasteries were set apart for, that men and women could go them, be totally dedicated to the Lord, not be involved in the world whatsoever, separate themselves from the world where Christ said, go into the world. Uh, I remember back in the 80s, some trade magazines for pastoral leadership, they would talk about these communities that are being set up on the East Coast and in the Midwest where if you're a Christian, you can live there and then Christians can be there all by themselves. And I was so much against that because we're supposed to go into the world but not be part of of the world and they thought the Galatians thought that they could make themselves acceptable before God by the things that they observed and practiced nothing that we do garners the favorable favorability of God the only thing that does is our trust in him everything else that we do is part of the sanctification process becoming who we're supposed to be who we're meant to be in Christ and the rules and regulations that are there it's not that we have rules and regulations and commandments that we have to follow the way that we follow is the way of love we do things because we're motivated by love we are not motivated because of condemnation or gaining God's favor and again that is so contrary to the way that we live, to the way that society operates. If you do the right things, you get exalted in society. Christ doesn't say that. Christ says, I only want those who believe. Not, it's not what you do, it's who you believe. And this is where the error was taking place that Paul was pointing out. He even goes on to say that Abraham was a man of faith, and by faith he was justified before God. The individual who is under the law can never be justified by observing it. And just like Abraham, if we have faith in Jesus, we can be justified, declared right before him. This is available to everyone, whether somebody is Jewish or somebody is a Greek or slave or free or male or female or Lake Sidian or El Cajonian or San Diegan or whatever the case might be. We are all, uh, we all have availability to this righteousness that is by faith. In chapter four, he tells us, that we are children of a promise as opposed to the children under the law. If we are under the law, we are slaves to that law. And he uses the example of Hagar and her son Ishmael that was born under the law, and she was a slave, and so the son would have been considered a slave as well. And he compares that to Isaac, who was born as a result of a promise. And so just as Abraham was told to get rid of the slave woman, which is Hagar, 
and her son, we are to get rid of the practices under the law. We are no longer slaves. We become heirs and children of a promise. So the application of all this theology that he has comes to us in chapter 5. Now, chapter 5, I want to pick it up there in verse 1. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Again, he's using metaphors here to describe if we're under these rules and regulations, it's like the cattle that have the yoke put on their neck, the oxen. And once it's on their neck, then they are driven and they are pulled and they are whipped and they have to go in a particular direction. And that's what it was like to be a Jew under the law. You had to observe at least three feasts throughout the year. And if you did not do so, there were great problems and you had to make amends for that. And all the sins that were committed, not only by the individual, but also by the nation, there were sacrifices that were supposed to be taken care of at the tabernacle and later on at the temple. And you had to do this all the time. And 23 and a third percent of your income was dedicated to tithing. And on top of that, there was supposed to be an offering regularly given to those who were poor or anybody else who was in need. And if you gave money, you are not supposed to expect for it to be repaid back. You are not supposed to uh, charge interest and just everything with that, the diet. You couldn't have lobster. You couldn't have shrimp. You couldn't have clams. You couldn't have mussels. The only thing you could eat from the sea was that which had scales. And you couldn't eat pig. You couldn't have that nice Easter ham which is out there because a pig, it doesn't chew the cud, but it does have a split hoof. And rabbit, you couldn't eat rabbit because it chews the cud, but it doesn't have a split hoof. You know, and so all of these things, a camel as well who chewed the cud but didn't have a split hoof. You couldn't eat a camel. What can we eat today if we want to? We can eat camel. We can eat pig. We can eat shellfish. We can eat lobster. Mm, we can eat shrimp. All of those things we can have today. But there are people who would say, no, you can't have that. And there's even a movement, and you can look it up. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And in the Hebrew Roots Movement, you can't have shellfish. You're supposed to recognize the Sabbath. And these individuals claim to be Christians, but they don't believe in pastors. There are only shepherds. There are no pastors and elders in the church that is supposed to be set up. And they're, they're even making sacrifices out there. And that is clearly in the vein of what is talked about in the book of Galatians. You're returning to these useless practices under the law. Why are you doing this? You think it gives you... Uh, or it garners for you favor from God or merit from God where he looks at you and says, oh, I have to bless you now because you've been following all these rules. That is not the case at all whatsoever. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He wants us to be free. He doesn't want us under the yoke of slavery, uh, under the yoke of the law. He says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He goes on in verse 2 and says, Mark my words, exclamation point. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, just reasoning through this, you think, but the Old Testament talks about circumcision. Do you know what has replaced circumcision from the Old Testament in the New Testament? It's baptism. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign that you were of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, delivered to the Jews. If you were not circumcised in the New Testament, you don't have to be. The scripture is clear about this, and Paul will tell us most definitively 
that it is not necessary to do that. But is it necessary that we are baptized? Yes, absolutely. It's part of the discipleship that Christ calls us to. There's no reason why anybody should not be baptized. We should all be baptized. It identifies us as being part of the covenant. If we don't do it, it simply is a result of disobedience in our lives. And Christ calls us to be baptized. No special uh, classes are necessary in order to do it. You confess Christ, that's good. Get dunked as quick as you can, completely submerge, all the air's out, then you come up, everything's cleansed, it's all good. You're done. That's the act of obedience. Now, on top of that, the sanctification process works out. Somebody recently got saved. You can pray for him, James. He got saved in the youth group. And uh, rough. Oh, that kid's rough. Um, and I would tell him to his face, he's rough. And he would admit it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of rough. You know, he brings the knives and the lighters to church. And he lights them off, stuff like that. It's, okay, we got a long ways to go. And some of the more mature uh, kids in the youth group, you know, I turn to them and go, he's got a long way to go. Yeah, he's got a long way to go. And, and grace for this kid. But he is genuine, as genuine as you can possibly be. And he's concerned that he's probably going to go into the military. And he's concerned that he may not stick with the program. I said, don't worry about it. God's got your back. He will provide for you what you need. And and I always was reminding him that when you get saved, you're not signing up for Calvary Chapel Lakeside. You're signing up for Jesus Christ. No matter where you go, you're going to follow him. And you have to know his word. And and so this is good. But somebody like him could be easily deceived, easily taken to the side and told things in Scripture that are not true. And one of those things could be, like in the Hebrew Roots movement, you have to be circumcised. Well, that would be false teaching that is there. He goes on to emphasize this. He says again, verse 3, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now, I don't know about you, but have you read through the book of Leviticus? Have you read through the book of Deuteronomy? Everything that is required there, what you must do, what you must not do. I actually uh, talked to a guy in the Hebrew Roots Movement. I said, "Um, did you find any mold in your house around the shower or anything? Have you called for the priest to inspect that? The priest is supposed to inspect any mold that is inside your house. And if he declares that to be unclean, you're supposed to rip it out. And you're supposed to take it outside of the city or outside of the camp or to the dump. And you're supposed to redo your whole bathroom. That's what the priest's job is supposed to be. That's one of the things. Also, have you had any skin rashes lately? Have you had a pastor or a priest look at that? You know, that's in the Old Testament as well. You know, you can't walk anywhere on the Sabbath, really anywhere of distance, and you can't light a fire on the Sabbath according to the traditions of men in the Old Testament because that would be work. And all of these things, if you started, just go ahead, read through the book of Leviticus and see if you want to follow all of those things that are in there under the ceremonial law, under the sacrificial law. Do you have a couple pigeons and a a couple turtle doves that you would like to go ahead and sacrifice to the Lord? Do you have an oxen that you'd like to offer? or a lamb and all those things are required and if you're going to do that where are you going to offer it you know it was only acceptable to offer it at the tabernacle or at the temple there is no tabernacle there is no temple so what are you going to do now it's like the jews today they say oh give money they just kind of change the word of god of what's supposed to happen and that is just made up by men 
And we want to make sure we are not imposing on other people what we consider those acts to be righteous before God because it might bring some merit. I want to keep on repeating this so you guys get it. You understand what's going on. If somebody comes along and says, you need to change your diet to be glorifying to God. Sorry, that's not what scripture teaches. And you can stand up against that. If you start practicing those types of things, you are obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified, verse 4, by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, what, what does this mean? You have been alienated from Christ. And the point is, you keep the law, you think that's going to make you righteous, you are going away in the opposite direction of what Christ says. You are justified in the eyes of God by believing in Jesus Christ, and that's by his grace. Now, grace is unmerited or unearned favor. God looks at us, those who believe, and he says, I'm going to give you favor. I'm going to look upon you with favor. It would be like a billionaire coming to you and saying, you know, I'm going to pay off your mortgage. And you'd say, woohoo, yeah, unmerited favor. What did I do? Nothing. You didn't do anything. I'm just going to do that for you. <clears throat> I just saw, was it Shaq? Or somebody else, Shaquille O'Neal, it was some basketball player. He walked into a jewelry store, and a guy was in there buying an engagement ring. He gave the guy the money for the engagement ring. Unmerited favor. Just saw him in there, and it's like he just paid for it for him. What a great thing. Or when somebody comes up and says, I just bought you a new car. It's all yours. And you don't even have to pay the tax on it. I've taken care of that as well. If somebody did that, that's unmerited favor. But for us, it's salvation. God comes to us and says, since you believe, I'm just going to give you this salvation. That's it. Not earned, just simply given. So what does it mean if you do this, if you go to those works of the law to be justified, you have fallen away from grace? Now, does that mean... You have lost your salvation? Is that what it means? I just want to state up front, I cannot determine in myself somebody's salvation, their state before God, if they are saved or not saved. Now, I can see evidence, like, for instance, if they, a little story, went down to this orphanage down in Mexico years ago, and it was uh, Arcos de los Niños, and it dealt with those who were handicapped in Mexico that didn't have a place to go that were orphaned. And they would take them to this orphanage, and this orphanage was building a bakery to, and also a brick-making facility in order to provide money for the orphans to take care of them. <clears throat> and we were told, go down and put drywall up in the kitchen area. And... We were doing that and we were putting drywall up on the walls and we got to the ceiling and there were several of us working, holding up the drywall in the ceiling and you know how that is. And I don't think we had screw guns at that point. We were using hammers and the drywall nails uh, to stick it up there. And we were right above a refrigerator that was a propane refrigerator. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with those. You can buy those uh, and they work. You want to store them outside or have some type of vent for them because the fumes from those refrigerators go straight up and they cover the room and those fumes come down and it can displace oxygen in the room. 
It's a bad thing. You have to have some type of vent for it. Well, we were right over the refrigerator. And we were putting up the drywall right above the refrigerator. And this guy, I I just met him that day. He came down with another group. And we're putting up this drywall. And we're getting all the fumes from the refrigerator. And we're holding this stuff up. And he's missing some of the nails going up. You know, I don't know if he was lacking oxygen or what the case was. And immediately, it just blurts out out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. He takes God's name in vain. Audibly, everybody could hear it. Shocked everybody. Here we are doing the work of the Lord, and now we're cursing God. It's like, that, that just that doesn't match up with what you think needs to take place. And, and then I wonder, well, is this guy even saved? If that's what's in his heart, you know, so I wonder. I don't know. I have no idea. Now, if somebody comes up and says, I'm not a Christian, don't intend to be a Christian, okay, that's the evidence right there. They, they deny Christ. But if somebody says, I am a Christian, and then their life doesn't really reflect it very well, are they a Christian? Are they not? I don't know. But I, I don't want to give them a lot of assurance that, oh, you're saved. Just go ahead. Whatever you want to do. Be a libertine. It's, it's fine. And be an Epicurean. Just get involved in whatever you want to. No, you don't do that. But you wonder, are they saved? Or are they not? Is there fruit in their life? And so this falling from, away from grace... First, I believe what it's talking about is you're moving away from the gospel of Christ. And what is being introduced is a heresy here. Follow the law, move away from Christ, which is no gospel at all. And that's what Paul actually says. We have previously read that. So we are saved by grace through faith. God's unearned favor has been given to us, not because of what we do or have done, but simply because we believe in and he desires to give us that grace as a result. And in other words, since we believe we trust in God, and God desires to save us, and he does. And that, that's the whole end of the matter as far as salvation is concerned. Now, if we fall away from grace, if we do that, that is not salvation. If a church is teaching, follow all of these things, we are leading them away from the true gospel. Now, who does stuff like that? It would be teachers inside the church who would lead people away from the true grace of God. Now, going on uh, on with this, does this mean that if we first trusted in Jesus by faith and then we turn to the works of the law, are we no longer saved if that happens? And I've seen people do that. I've seen people where they're following the law And then they go to this works-based type of faith. In other words, can you lose your salvation? Again, I, I can't determine whether or not somebody is saved except by their own testimony, but can you lose it? Now, this is a question that comes up. This falling away from grace is why I'm bringing this up because people are concerned. Well, if I have eternal life, can I surrender eternal life? You know, the old adage goes, the scripture says, nobody can take you out of my hand. But what if you're in the hand of Christ and you want to jump out? Is that possible? Can you jump out of the hand? The Arminius would say yes. The Calvinists would say no. Uh, can't happen. Well, let me give you some guarantees. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ." He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts. And all this is by request, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. 
So we have the deposit of the Holy Spirit once we get saved living in us. That is different from the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit could indwell somebody, but the Holy Spirit could leave at will. Jesus gives us the promise that if we get the Holy Spirit, we get the Holy Spirit forever. If we get the Holy Spirit forever, how long are we saved for? Forever. Forever. I mean, that's it's just like... Okay, this is not hard to reason through. We got this, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now, if it is God who made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's the second verse that says, the Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. If you bought something recently at Macy's in El Cajon, and they had a guarantee you could take it back. Can you take it back now? They're closed. Sorry, the guarantee is only as good as who's offering the guarantee. How good is Jesus Christ? He's good and he guarantees it and it's going to happen. And so these couple of verses certainly guarantee that if you're truly saved, you're making it to the end. Now, might you make it as a disobedient sheep? Yes. Might you not finish well? Yes. If you read the book of Corinthians in chapter 15, it talks about the resurrection first of Jesus Christ. And then we who are remaining, it talks about the rapture of the church. It says we will all be changed. How many people were difficult to say the least in the church of Corinth? Tons of them. Disobedient left and right, leaving their spouses, taking each other to court, misusing the gifts, carnality all over the place, adultery, sexual immorality, all of those things are taking place. And yet Paul says, we will all be changed. We all includes everybody in the church of Corinth. God also will never turn his back on us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And it doesn't say, but you can leave. It doesn't say that. And those who possess eternal life will never perish. John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and this is again by our request, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And John six fifty one. if we eat the bread of Christ, we will live forever. It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats, this is again by our request, of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now, see, we have verse after verse after verse that says, as far as God is concerned, we live forever. Can anything separate us from the love of God? No. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we want to remain in God's hand, there's certainly nothing that can remove us from his hand. There's nothing that can separate us. And when he says nothing, that means nothing. Once we get saved, it's like we're secure. The question is, are you really saved? Now, see, you have questions about people like that, people who have been in the church for a long time, worship leaders, pastors. Uh, There was a guy who uh, served with Billy Graham that became an atheist, you know, and, and they were buddies. They were buds. And one went to the way of the world, atheist or agnostic at the very least. And Billy Graham, of course, went on to be a great evangelist. Well, what about that? I think what applies here is the parable of the sower of the seed. And it's in Matthew chapter 13. 
And I really think it applies to the soils, but they call it the parable of the soil of the seed. If you remember, there's the first type of seed. It falls on the path, the hard path. The path would be like the floor here in the sanctuary. It's concrete. You throw the seed down there and then the birds come and eat it up. And that's representative of Satan comes and takes the word out of the mind of the individual, has them focus on something else. And therefore the word of God has no effect, just like the seed would not germinate. And after that, there are the rocky places, which didn't have much soil and the seed quickly germinated and it came up. But when persecution comes, then the seed that produces the plant, the plant withers. It doesn't produce any fruit. And then there is the seed that falls among the thorns and the thistles. Right now, in our county here, we have a lot of thorns, a lot of thistles that are coming up. And if you walk out in the fields barefoot, you're going to get stung with little needles, little prickly things which are out there, and it's very uncomfortable. And those plants go grow twice as fast as anything else if you were to go by 67 and the sparklets plant out here they have planted winter wheat and that winter wheat if you'll notice and you look out there and also down at the border if you go down to the border by the new 125 uh, the old old chai ranch down there they have planted winter wheat all over the place and up in the middle of that you see this mustard coming up you can see the yellow flowers all over the top that will grow faster than the wheat and it will choke out the wheat and that represents things in this world like the pursuit of riches they will take that plant and cause it to wither just like the weeds will cause the plant to wither and be choked out the cares of this life what might the cares be it could be family children spouse it could be business all of those things they take the individual who has the potential to bring forth fruit and it ruins their walk with Christ now how and the, of course the final one is the nice furrowed ground the seed falls in it gets water germinates produce uh, 30 60 and 100 times that which is sown and that's great that's the person who is saved but those other two they germinate they're in the church how long are they in the church for a day, a year, 20 years, it could be a long time. And what you perceive as being fruit is no fruit at all. It is something that is deceiving to us. And we know that those who are unsaved grow up together with those who are saved inside the church. And it's at the end that God separates them out. And of course, the question was asked by the angels who do the harvesting, should we go and pull out, or the servants who own the field, should the servants go out and pull out the the tares that are in the field? And the master of the field said, no, don't pull them up lest you harm the seed or the wheat that is coming up as well. So God allows both to grow together inside of a church. So how long can somebody be in a church, think that they're saved and not actually be saved? It can be decades. And so that's why we don't know if somebody is saved or not saved. And the fruit that we think that they might be producing is no fruit at all. We know that uh, some people will do works just to get attention or notoriety or to make themselves feel good. And that's not to be the motivation why anyone does any work for Christ at all. There are two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That is to be the thing that motivates us. So how can we know if we're truly saved? Am I one of those in the church that's actually a terror that I'm producing fruit but I'm not really saved? How do I know 
that I am going to remain in Christ or that I'm actually in Christ and not a tear as opposed to the wheat. Well, we have some assurances in Scripture. John 15, verse 4, he says, Remain in me or abide in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. This used to be a Scripture song we used to sing in church. Next time we do worship, maybe we'll sing this song. It's kind of around. It's kind of fun uh, to sing this song. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. Are you grafted into Christ? Are you remaining in Christ? Are you in fellowship? Are you in the Word? Are you in prayer? All of those things. If you continue to do that all the way to the end, you're abiding in Christ, you're saved. What about the people who seem to be abiding in Christ and are no longer abiding in Christ? Well, it's like the branches. Recently, I had the chance to prune some grapevines. And these grapevines, you know, they, they come up and they spread out and you got to clip them a certain way, a couple of feet away, and you got to leave little stubs up on top so the new buds can come out and there can be tons of fruit on there. And I left the branches for somebody else to pick up and they did. And they picked up and they didn't create a fire, but they threw them away. They threw these branches away. Well, it can be like that if a branch does not produce fruit. And by the way, some of these grapevines, there are certain ones that when they first come out, they produce clusters, these blooms that come out. And then after those blooms come to fruition and they produce grapes, there are other branches that come out and just start going everywhere. And you've got to go through and you've got to clip off all of those branches. They're still in the vine, but they're not producing fruit. And so they're taken out. That's the same thing with the individual who might be in the church who thinks they're saved and eventually they leave the church. They really never had any lasting fruit. First John chapter 2, verse 24 says, See that you have heard what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. So if we remain in Christ to the end of our lives, we have great assurance of our faith. If we don't, what assurance is there? What about the person who says, you know, I have an eclectic mix in my life. I like to go to this church. And I like to go to that church. And sometimes I don't, don't go to church. And I, I listen to some Buddhist and they're fine too. I would give that person no assurance that they are truly saved. They're buying into the philosophy of the day. Like just stick with Christ. Stick with his word. And you'll have that that assurance that you were saved. What about the person who is a CEO Christian? You know, Christmas and Easter only. What if they only show up to church then? Are they saved? I don't know. Probably not. I, I don't know. But they're not producing any fruit. They're not regularly involved in the body life of Christ. Well, let's now digress back to this issue of circumcision. Verse 5 says, But by faith we eagerly await the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Uncircumcision? I don't know exactly how that works. But the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that's what I've been saying. Our motivation is to be love. It's not to be the works that gain God's favor. 
First, love for God. Second, love for each other. Now, how do we show our love for God? How do we do that exactly? Well, it's through devotion to him, prayer, the word, sacrifice, learning, worshiping individually and corporately, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That, that is first and foremost in your life. That's what drives you. That's what compels you. Everything is surrounded by this desire to love God. And by the way, when we sin, <coughs> it is not that we are not following the rules. It's that we are being unloving towards God. Remember David when he committed adultery? He said, against you only have I sinned. He didn't sin against anybody else. He sinned against God because his devotion to God and his love for him waned. Mark chapter 12 verse 30 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. So how do we show our love for others? Same way, service, sacrifice, fellowship, sharing the word, encouragement, You know, the person who chooses not to fellowship in person, that means we miss out on their particular gift. Whatever their gift is, they need to be exercising that gift. We need to have the fellowship of the saints. And Romans 14, 19 says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. If somebody is not here, you can't be mutually edified. How are you going to help somebody or encourage them or give them counsel if they are absent Same thing with us. If we are not there, how can we receive those things? We cannot. So it starts with the heart, and then the works come after that. The heart has to be transformed first. Checking my time here. Now, if you don't have the heart to do works of service and sacrifice for others, if you're just not into it, I just don't feel it. I just don't want to do it. What should you do? You should do them anyhow. Do those works anyhow. Compel yourself. Paul said he buffets his body. He beats up his body in order to get it to conform to Christ. Just do those things. And the heart usually comes after that. Uh, Going on in verse 7. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? The kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. And take note of this. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty whoever he may be. I'm going to go back and comment on that. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, Is that strong language? I'm going to tell you exactly what that means in a minute, but this idea of a little yeast. What what is a little yeast that can be inside the church? The process of yeast working, when you have yeast, it produces one of three things, at least as we know it. It can produce an acid, it can produce carbon dioxide, or it can produce alcohol. It transforms sugars or carbohydrates into those other elements. For instance, grape juice, if you give the right yeast, you'll get vinegar, which is an acid. If you've ever drank some vinegar, maybe it, it stings a little bit. That's because it's an acid. Uh, there's the apple cider vinegar that some health experts say, you should drink this, it's good for your body. <clears throat> that may or may not be the case. And, and if you take 
uh, some bread, or if you take some wheat and you grind it up and you add yeast to it, it produces carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide causes the loaf to rise uh, from the inside out. And then if you have alcohol or beer and you add yeast to that, uh, the, the fermentation process, it produces the alcohol inside of the alcoholic beverage. That's how it conducts. It, it takes something and changes it to something else. Paul is saying, you have this circumcision and the law, it changes the gospel into something else. He goes, a little bit of that will go through the whole loaf. And you got to make sure you get rid of it. And then there's the one who's throwing you into confusion who will pay the penalty. Who is this one? Apparently there was this individual who was causing all this transformation. One guy. Now, it was like the Reverend Jim Jones who turned the church into a cult and ended up in Guyana, and it actually cost people their lives. It could be the same said of Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, Charles Taz Russell, David Koresh, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church. You know, he's the guy that will say God always heals. Always. Is that a false doctrine? That is most certainly a false doctrine. Also, this grave-sucking thing where you go to the grave of some of the spiritual greats from the times of old and you lay atop of the grave and you suck out the remaining spirit that is in the body of the individual in the grave. Is that not heresy? Not only heresy, but that's probably occult practices. Or I don't know if you've heard about this, the the Passion Translation of the Bible. Don't even go there if you get it. Use it to start your fire in your fireplace. Just get rid of that thing. It is a total heretical document. And he goes on, verse 12. Again, I want to repeat this. As for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, this word emasculate for us, it's apocopto, which means off chop. That's what he's telling him. You want to circumcise yourself? Off chop. The whole thing. Just end it. And we're not talking about the modern day gender reassignment surgery and all that. We're talking about you just do yourself in, buddy. Now, is that strong language? Could you imagine Paul saying this? I would like you to just go ahead and emasculate yourself. No, he wasn't doing that. I hope you just go all the way and you end it. Just end it. All right. And he was being sarcastic in their face, telling them this is so wrong because you're changing the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace. Now, to apply all this, what this one individual was doing was acting like yeast to transform the true gospel of Jesus into no gospel at all. Just as in the epistles to the Corinthians, the super apostles that ridiculed Paul, they were argumentative. This guy obviously was argumentative. They're puffed up in their own accomplishments and Second Corinthians, especially the letters of recommendations that they had. This guy would probably claim some type of authority from Jerusalem being a Judaizer. Uh, these type of people, they accuse the existing leadership of getting it wrong. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. I've got the true gospel. Things were not being done according to their satisfaction or according to this guy's satisfaction. You're not doing it right so to speak. And Paul saying, no, it's definitely being done right. You are the one who is in error. Paul, in both of his letters to the Corinthians and the epistles to Galatians, he lays out a reasoned argument for the proper doctrine or for proper doctrine, but there is still pushback 
from those who seek to change it. They're not going to Scripture in order to uh, get the proper truth. They are just pushing their own desires. This is still the case today. There will be leadership that is true to God's Word, and there will be leadership who will wish to do things their own way. They will not seek after or submit to biblical counsel. They will just say, no, this is right. I don't need anybody to tell me what's right or wrong. I got this all down by myself. And by doing so, just like the Judaizers with Paul, they indict the current leadership. So these people who come in, they sow the discord, they sow the other doctrine, they are saying the current leadership is wrong. They are wrong on all points. And this still happens today. And they think that they're right. And yet no scripture has any in private interpretation. We know that in a group of believers, there is wise counsel. And so you always want to go to a group of believers to find out what true doctrine is. And my encouragement to you is to know and reason through the scriptures and let it guide you in all things. This was the problem in the uh, church in Galatia. They weren't following the scriptures. They were buying into what this guy said. This guy was probably a, a charismatic leader of some type. But we are to test all teachers and all leaders in the church by the word of God. And that includes me. As I speak to you, you're supposed to be able to say, amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's what we're supposed to be able to do. And if you're up here teaching, I should be able to say amen because it's in scripture. And if you think, now he's a little off on this one, you'd say, well, here's what the scripture says. And by the way, I want to buttress this idea that we're to test all teachers. You know this verse, if you've been here any length of time. Acts 17.11, Now the Bereans were more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. That's our exhortation. We examine the Scriptures, we know the Scriptures, we reason through it, and we come to a conclusion because the Spirit of God works in all of us. And we can easily follow God's will by doing so. We don't have to worry about getting off into error to having a circumcision club that's set up over in the fellowship hall or those who are going to go out and do certain works or uh, maintain certain diets inside the church. We don't have to worry about any of that if we properly interpret the scripture through the community of the believers inside the church. May the Lord provide for you wisdom. May he give you discernment to see who those false teachers are. And usually it's one or two people that can invade any church at any time. And may God grant you the wisdom to see it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how discerning it is. And how you told us in this church there was one person who was leading everyone astray. Help us, Lord, not to fall to personality. Help us not to fall to false teaching. Help us to be true to your word and defend the faith, all of us, Lord, not just those in leadership or those who are teachers. May we know your will in all circumstances. Provide for us the discernment by the power of your spirit. And we know that you'll give this to us. For we ask anything according to your will, you give it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And everyone said...